Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi, listeners. Quick note about this episode. About 34-ish minutes in, there were some technical issues and we had to use some backup audio for a brief moment. So if some of the audio sounds a bit different for a short time, that's why. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Caitlin. Uh, sorry to bother you, but wow. would you like to record a podcast with me I today, can, right no, now? No, I have... I'm stage four. I can't. I can't record a podcast today. Please <sighs> click, click. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> and then a whole lot more movie. Yeah. Hi, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I think that went well. I think our perfect. The thing about our intros is that we're always giving it about forty percent. It's not my best effort most of the time. Well, I that wasn't a personal attack. Mine are are <laughs> operating on a lower level, I would say. I well, I usually just say the name of the movie and then we start. Look. Mm. Look, we're off to a start. Welcome to the Bechtel cast. <laughs> My name is Jamie Loftus. My name is Caitlin Durante and this is our show where we analyze movies through an intersectional feminist lens using the Bechtel test simply as a jumping off point, just trying to get a conversation going. Yes. Do we regret naming it this after all these years? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, 100%. But uh, it's uh, unfortunately too late. It's okay. Too late. <laughs> today, today, I'm so excited uh, for the movie we're covering today. A popular request since it came out. Um, Should we say what the Bechtel test is, though, first? Or oh do we not want to do that? <laughs> I guess let's do it. Oh, can I do it? Please. So the Bechtel test is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel, sometimes called the Bechtel-Wallace test. A lot of versions of the test. 
the one we use, requires that two characters of a marginalized gender with names speak to each other about something other than a man for two lines of dialogue. Surprisingly relevant to this movie, but it's our jumping off point for discussion. Mm-hmm. And what is this movie, Jamie? Today's movie, uh, we've been getting requests for basically since it came out four years ago. Uh, yeah. We're super excited to finally be covering it. It's Sorry to Bother You, Boots Riley, 2018. And we have an incredible guest to discuss this movie with. Let's get him in the mix. We really do. He is the host of two weekly podcasts, Intuit from Vulture and Vibe Check from Stitcher. It's Sam Sanders. Hi. Thank y'all for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for coming. Oh, yeah. welcome. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I can tell. So much fun. <laughs> We're fun. <laughs> We're fun. We're so fun. So fun. So <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what is your relationship with the movie Sorry to Bother You? You know, it's interesting. So I remember when that movie came out there was so much buzz about how you needed to watch it because it's this commentary on late stage capitalism and yes, do it. And I watched it and I remembered it. And then I want to say, who was the director of this film? Boots Riley? Was it him? Yeah. Yes. So then I was also enamored by the anti Oscars campaign he led. Yeah. You know, he was shortlisted. There was talk of him getting some Oscars for this film. Critics loved it. Lakeith Stanfield was great in it. And then he doesn't get nominations and he says, I didn't get any for this film because I didn't chase it. I don't play that game and I don't like that. And I liked that as well. Mm -hmm. And then later when he was doing press for some other uh, piece of work he was doing, I got to interview Lakeith Stanfield a few years ago. So I loved him because of that. Mm -hmm. So in general, every time I think of this movie and my experience with it and the actors and the plot and the dialogue around it, I liked it. But then I rewatched it two nights ago through the Bechtel lens and mm. things changed <laughs> things changed uh, yeah things changed that tends to happen mm-hmm. with us yeah mm-hmm. and there was like a fair amount of I, I had to like launch myself backwards in time and remember like there was that was sort of discussed when the movie came out but it wasn't a main topic of discussion which is totally understandable but yeah watching this movie with Bechtel goggles on um, it changes everything it does change things. <laughs> uh, Jamie, what about you? What's your relationship? Uh, I saw this movie shortly after it came out, and I really, really loved it when it came out. I feel like it's just, like, I just love the how this movie looks, too. Like, mm-hmm. every performance mm-hmm. is amazing. It's beautiful. I feel like it's a peak bisexual lighting culture kind oh, of movie. Oh, yeah, 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 which we love. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. I'm clinging to it. Uh, but I feel like 2018 is where it was like peak bisexual lighting. Yeah. Um, that's how you knew something was about to happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I loved. I really loved this movie when it came out. Um, I feel like it's uh, one of the better, more fun to watch leftist movies right up there with Chicken Run. Does it top Chicken Run? Let's not pit them against mm. each other. Um, I yeah, love sure. the idea of Chicken Run as a leftist film, now that oh. you say it. Oh, you're right. Oh. Sam, you have to watch Chicken Run with leftist <laughs> goggles. It's so much, it's even okay. better. Oh, I'm going to do that. I tell you what, I'm going to do that. It's a blast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this, this is like one of my favorite movies at the time. I still really, really like it. Um, and I also think for our purposes, there's uh, there's 
some stuff to discuss that I, I think I noticed at the time, but was very willing to overlook because there's so many elements of this movie that I love. Yeah. So mm -hmm. there's a lot to talk about. And also I think if nothing else, like I was not super familiar with Boots Riley as a cultural figure prior to this movie coming out. And I'm very happy I know about him now. Cause he's like, he was like raised by like union organizers. Like he's the fucking oh. coolest. I'm excited to talk about oh, him. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, what's your history with this movie? I saw this movie in theaters during, I believe, the movie pass days. Ooh, that would have been my movie pass. Towards the end. Yeah, I believe so. Wow. Movie pass, hashtag never forget. And It's um, coming back, though. It's coming Sorry back. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it's coming back. Wait, at the same, like, in the same way? It's different. There's a limit. Oh, okay. <laughs> because that is actually that's how money works. <laughs> <laughs> They forgot that the first time. Yeah. And I loved that. <laughs> right. When you think about it, MoviePass was kind of, it was like for the people, you know, it was mm -hmm. an indictment of capitalism. <laughs> it was like pay $10 and get 30 movies a month. I don't know much about the business side of what happened there. Was it like for the people or was it just someone was like bad at being a capitalist i think someone had a really bad business plan and was banking yeah. on the fact that like people wouldn't go similar to how yeah like you know you like join a gym and you pay a gym membership and you're like oops mm. i've been paying this for six months and never went to the gym i think people were banking on like the but the, see here's the difference going to the gym is hard going to the movies is not exactly yeah i will buy a gym membership say i want to go and then not but if I buy a movie pass that just lets me go to movies, mm -hmm. I'm always going to choose to just go to a fucking movie. Exactly. Right. Come on. I, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I feel like there yeah. was kind of this golden age of like 2017 and then whenever in 2018 it got cut off where so many people have seen every movie just because it was possible. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh -huh. I saw so many movies that I would definitely not have like paid $10 even 10, I mean, and that's like using 15 years ago prices. Mm. I saw I Tanya 13 times on MoviePass. Look. <laughs> Wait, stop. <laughs> really? Yes, it's the sickest thing about me. Margot Robbie was great in that role. She wasn't that great. Look, Sam, you've never been me at my absolute lowest if you haven't seen <laughs> I Tanya 13 times at the Los Feliz 3. Uh, my current oh. I Tanya is Dune. Ooh. I put it on at night on the couch as a screensaver while I look at Zillow listings. <laughs> that <laughs> it's really pretty. And you can what just constantly look at it because it's really pretty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't care about the plot at all. I mean, I don't. Um, I couldn't even sit through it. I just have it on as a screensaver. <laughs> it's, it's a screensaver. It's really good when you're on a second screen mm -hmm. or when you're stoned. <laughs> Wait, the, uh, excuse me. Wait, this is an anti-drug <laughs> podcast. You can't be talking about getting. <laughs> Thank you for whispering. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Dare. D A R. -E. <laughs> uh, screensaver movie is such a perfect description. Oh, that's like that is a whole genre, a but I've never heard movie. it described oh, that way. Oh, listen, <laughs> and I love them all. I love them all. <laughs> Okay. Every Baz Luhrmann movie, screensaver movie. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. I would... I mean, some of them are also good, but like in terms of screensaver movie, it needs to just be so visual and beautiful sure. that you can enjoy it with the volume off. To me, Baz Luhrmann movies are too chaotic to be screensavers. I feel like you need like a soothing, slow, just like not really much happening. That's... Uh, okay, I hear that. Although I would watch Romeo plus Juliet on mute. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. It might actually be more palatable that way. Some might say, yeah, some Baz Luhrmann works could be better on mute. That's how I've been doing the new Lord of the Rings series. Because I know it's pretty. I know that, like, mm. Lord of the Rings is never, I don't know why, it's never going to quite connect for me. But I don't, I'm not mad at it. I like having it around. Sure, sure. But I also like pressure not to not watch it. Yeah. I just marvel at the discourse because I'm like, I truly do not care. Like a few friends of mine were trying to like get me into the like Black Hobbit discourse last week. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. (laughs) But good for you. So anyway, sorry to bother you. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Sorry about that. Sorry to bother y'all with all that. Oh, no, no, no. Not at all. I mean, I feel like also our episodes tend to, like the tone of our episodes tend to match the tone of whatever movie we're talking about. And this is a very chaotic movie. So it is chaotic episode. <laughs> it is. Yes. Um, so <laughs> Good save. Good save. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so I saw Sorry to Bother You in theaters. I didn't know much about it except that, so I, like the marketing of the movie was like, oh, it's about this black character who code switches to perform better at his telemarketing job that was kind of the only thing I knew about it didn't know it was a whole indictment of late stage capitalism like I and so I went into it kind of unprepared for all the stuff that this movie accomplishes um, and thought it was really cool thought yeah just like visually narratively thematically a lot of cool stuff happening Lakeith Stanfield is in my like top five celebrity crushes also he's also a really nice guy is he oh i'm so glad to hear that yeah well if he's listening to this and lakeith you you know know. we love you i interviewed him years ago (laughs) and just so humble so down to earth at one point he was in the interview booth drinking this like charcoal lemonade cleanse pure and juice or whatever and finally i was like what the fuck is up with your charcoal lemonade (laughs) and then he gave me a sip and it was good he gave you a sip on my I love that what a wow. generous man he's great love you Lakeith anywho as you were go ahead I would, uh, <laughs> the things I would sip from Lakeith Stanfield dis- uh, that's what I'm saying <laughs> wow, that's wow, what wow. I'm saying yes. wow. seconded <laughs> <laughs> anyway what an erotic so. thrilling experience <laughs> mm. so it was it was an enjoyable watch but I hadn't revisited it post seeing it for the first time uh, until prepping for this episode and I'm very excited to discuss. Yeah. So shall we get into it? I think this is the first movie we've covered in a while where the Bechdel test is actually um, a relevant point of discussion and it's like it's uh, well, well, we'll we'll get to the reasons why but it was like a discussion at the time and mm-hmm. I have so many thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but first we need to find out what happens in the damn movie. Let's do that. But even before that, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Quick question before we start the recap. Yes. Do those earrings hurt to wear, do you think? They seem very heavy, I would say. They seem very heavy. Possibly, yes. Oh, the earrings that Tessa wears in the movie? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was a lot. The first time I saw her wear the earrings, it was cute. But by the end of the movie, because they keep changing them out, I'm just like, spare her lobes. I spare was concerned for her lobes. Because you, I'm sure it was like multiple takes for every scene, you know? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Like they have, yeah, she has to get, there should be some sort of rule on like lobe distress. I was concerned for her mm. lobes. Same. I, I just am rooting for Tessa Thompson to not be in any discomfort in her entire life. <laughs> Same, same. Yeah. I would second that motion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so the plot of Sorry to Bother You goes as follows. We meet Cassius Green. He goes by Cash often. Uh, that's Lakeith Stanfield. Is that a metaphor for something? <gasps> Green Cash? Mm, okay, interesting. Green comma Cash. I'm thinking already. We meet him in a job interview and despite having lied on his resume and bringing several trophies to the interview, 
he gets a job as a telemarketer at a company called Regal View, where he will be expected to call as many people as possible and stick to the script. Mm. Then we see Cassius at home. He lives in Oakland with his partner, Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson. She's an artist. Cash expresses concerns that he'll die and nothing he did in life will matter. They then see a commercial for Worry-Free, which is like a work initiative where employees are guaranteed lifelong work. They are given a place to live. They are provided with meals. And Cash is like, hmm, this is something to think about, especially because he's broke. He drives a shitty car. He owes four months rent to his uncle Serge, who is played by Terry Crews. Yeah, it's kind of the... uh Amazon factory, like, on steroids. Yeah. And you noted, Caitlin, I don't think I noticed this the first time I watched, but it, you know, summer 2022, uh, the people at Work Free are dressed like the Minions. 100%. Yes. Oh. And that had to have been on purpose. The Minions were, I mean. Huge. Is Boots Riley a Minions head? Also, sidebar, the Minions have been big now for, like, close to a decade. That's crazy. They're, like... The most beloved actors of our generation. <laughs> Minions acting geniuses. Literally. <laughs> agree. Literally. Did you uh, see the newest Minions movie? And then I'll stop, I promise. Oh, We both did. The funeral scene oh when they're God. singing. <laughs> my God. I have not laughed that much since Soul Plane. I swear to <laughs> it's God. It's so funny. It so good. It's so funny. I was blown away by how much I was laughing. The the plane scene also got me so yes. good. Yeah, oh, the plane scene. Yes, peanuts. Yes. Mm. I love it. Oh, I love yeah. it. Oh, they yeah. are our stooges. Kevin Stewart and Bob. We digress. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think I, I mean, in 2018, Minions have been around since 2010. So. Oh, wow. I feel like Boots Riley, like that was probably an intentional stylistic choice, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. because the worry-free workers, they're wearing like blue overalls. I think a yellow shirt under that and then like yellow caps. Yeah. Almost like a swimming cap kind of thing that just make them look like minions. Kevin vibes. Such Big Kevin, time vibes. Kevin vibes. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because mm-hmm. we talked about this on our Despicable Me episode because we covered Despicable Me. <laughs> I love What's it. the union situation with the minions? It changes <gasps> all the time. Mm-hmm. In some movies, they're paid. In other movies, they don't appear to be paid. They have money oh, because snap. they contribute to Gru's GoFundMe to <laughs> steal the moon. Uh-huh. So it's a little complicated. Um, We're not sure. Boots Riley is thinking about it harder than um, the writer of Minions movies. <laughs> Although, wait, okay, one last sidebar. <laughs> we, <laughs> we talked about, maybe we mentioned this. I don't know if I knew this the last time we talked about Minions, but... Mike White is writing Despicable Me 4. Oh, Lord. Interesting. So then it's going to have a bunch of plot holes like White Lotus did. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I loved White Lotus, but a lot of plot holes. A lot of plot holes. But uh, que- there were questions. I was just, I I mean, I know Mike White make, can make a good kids movie. He wrote School Rock, but mm. I just was like, huh. Huh. Indeed. And good for him, you know? It's a worry-free Minions aesthetic. Um, it's yes. there. It's but, clear and present. Yes. So... Cassius arrives for his first day of work at Regal View. His manager tells him that if he makes a lot of sales as a telemarketer, he could become what's called a power caller, which seems to come with a lot more pay and perks. So Cash starts making calls. He always opens with the line, you know, sorry to bother you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And everyone hangs up on him. 
Then his colleague, Langston, played by Danny Glover of Saw fame, of course, his most famous role. We can all agree. I was going to say, I, I wrote Danny Glover parentheses of Saw. Uh, <laughs> no, he was in stuff before Saw. <laughs> I don't, Sam, I don't, I don't think that's true. It's, it, he started with Saw. I'm pretty sure that was his breakout role. <laughs> People are like, now this guy. This guy. What a talent. <laughs> Might I mention Lethal Weapon? Which would not at all pass the Bechdel test, but. <laughs> feminist masterpiece, lethal weapon. Doesn't hold a candle to feminist masterpiece, saw. Saw. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so Langston tells Cassius to use his quote unquote white voice while he's making calls. And Cassius is skeptical. He then goes to a staff meeting where Kate Berlant is there. Her character is Diana. Diana Debauchery. Such a, yes. All the character names in this movie are incredible. And she's so good. She gets like three minutes in that film, but it's a good three minutes. Oh my goodness. It's a yeah. solid three minutes. Yes. <laughs> so she's kind of giving a spiel about, you know, oh, they're a family and just like keep making calls and stick to the script. She's um, Mrs. Girlboss. Yes. We also, we've met this character before, but Salvador is there, played by Jermaine Fowler. Um, he is Cash's like best friend and also colleague. Also, there is Squeeze, played by Stephen Yoon. And Squeeze approaches Cassius after Cassius had asked, like, can we get paid more money? Squeeze approaches Cassius and tells him that some of the staff are trying to unionize. Mm. And then we see a newscast about protests at worry-free headquarters because employees there are forced to sign lifelong employment contracts which people liken to slavery especially because they're not paid well their labor is exploited etc however the ceo of worry-free steve lift played by army hammer denies these claims yeah (laughs) yikes army hammer i will say it's like we and we don't need to get into Army Hammer discourse because we would be here for five five hundred yeah, days. Yeah. Um, this would be our five hundred days of 500 summer. Five hundred days of uh, summer. <laughs> wow. Five hundred days of Army. Yeah. <laughs> Yucky. Army Hammer, like notorious abuser, and this is I feel like the only kind of role that I feel like I can still watch him in. It's like you you can't watch an Army Hammer movie even prior to any like thing becoming publicly available where you're supposed to empathize with him. This is mm. the least empathetic character in the movie at very least. Yeah. Still not, still not, doesn't feel good to see him. Uh, uh-uh. but yes, because he plays like the worst person. Yeah. The worst person. In, I mean, in the world. Yeah. <laughs> at least. Uh, yeah. A little easier to stomach. Yeah. Um, so cash starts using his quote unquote white voice, which is voiced by David Cross. Wait, stop. I didn't know that. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like David Cross. That's a good white guy. He's fun. That's a good white guy. (laughs) Anywho, go ahead. The famous people who signed on to do the white voices of black characters was David Cross, and then it's Lily James for Detroit, Mm -hmm. and Patton Oswalt for for Mr. Beep. Mr. 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 Beep. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so Cash starts using his white voice at work and starts to make a lot of sales. And it seems like he's well on his way to becoming a power caller. And meanwhile, 
Squeeze, Salvador, and others at Regal View are organizing and trying to unionize and planning a strike. Then it's the day that the Regal View callers, um, Squeeze, Salvador, Langston, Detroit, who works there now, mm-hmm. uh, as well as Cash, and everyone else, they go on strike. But this is also the day that the managers at Regal View promote Cash and make him a power caller, which he cautiously accepts. So then he goes up the private power caller elevator and meets his new boss, Mr. Beep, and uh, played by... In the voice in the power caller elevator is Rosario Dawson, I learned today. Yes, same, yeah. same. Mr. Beep is played by Omari Hardwick and voiced by Patton Oswald, as we said. Um, he tells Cash that Worry-Free is their biggest client. Basically, they sell cheap-slash-slave labor to CEOs so that corporations can make bigger profits. And Cash is conflicted because he wants to be a part of his colleagues' movement, um, but he's also trying to escape poverty, and he's trying to help out his Uncle Serge, who's about to lose his house. Mm. So he's conflicted, and on his first day as a power caller, Cash makes the company a ton of money, and then he starts to earn a lot more money. He's able to help out his uncle. He moves into a nicer place. Real HGTV kind of <laughs> sterile-looking apartment. Mm-hmm. And Detroit is like, hey, dude, you abandoned your friends. You sold out. The work you're doing is morally bankrupt. And he's like, well, I'm good at this job. And you're reaping the benefits of the money I'm making. Mm. Uh, And then she's like, well, if you go to work today and cross that picket line, we're through. Which he does. He goes to work. A protester throws a can of soda at his head, which becomes a meme and like kind of makes him internet famous it's like the have a cola and smile bitch meme i had to yeah i had to also check i was like this was intended as a reverse kendall jenner and um boots riley has confirmed it was intended as a reverse kendall jenner okay Um, i didn't make that connection but yeah that makes sense kendall jenner pepsi fiasco of Mm -hmm. 2017 i think it was yeah Um, So one night, Cash goes to Detroit's art show, which has very anti-capitalist themes, and she is still upset with Cash, and he leaves and goes to worry-free CEO Steve Lift's annual party at his Mm. house, question mark. Steve Lift is very impressed by Cash and all the big sales he has made. Then Cash goes to the bathroom and finds himself in a room full of human slash horse hybrid people equisapiens basically they have human bodies and the heads of horses cash is absolutely freaking out he's like what is going on steve explains slash shows a video to cash that worry-free scientists have been turning humans into these horse people to make them stronger more obedient and more productive workers and steve wants cash to become one of these equisapiens and work at worry-free for five years managing the other horse people but pretending to be there as steve lift puts it equisapien martin luther king jr and in return steve lift is going to give cash 100 million dollars Smiley face. Smiley face. And a promise that after yeah. five years, he'll turn him back from being a horse person. 
Exactly. Right. Like that was one of the, I mean, and we'll get way more into this during the discussion, but like, I, I liked that that detail was constantly thrown in to like put cash at ease. And it kind of like triggered different things in me of like different discussions you have when you're starting a job that you're like not totally comfortable with. They're like, well, you're not bad. You're just, it's just, it's temporary. It's and temporary. then you can go back to being a, like who you are right now when it's but like here's that. the thing that we know from that movie and from life some changes cannot be temporary some changes mm. are permanent right yeah and there's <laughs> like some shit you do that can't be undone it's like mm -hmm. it's oh man yeah i wish i could see this movie for the first time again because i didn't see it so, well we're getting to it in a second but the the mm. ending it doesn't feel good but it does feel accurate mm. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so despite the huge offer of money cash is like i don't want any part of this and he runs out mm -hmm. he's still freaking out he can't find his phone he also thinks that the coke he snorted at steve's party might actually be the like catalyst that turns you into a horse person horse dust so he goes to detroit for help and turns out the equisapiens have cash's phone and they had sent Detroit a video of them being like, please help us. We're in so much pain. And then you see Steve Lift come in and threaten to turn them into glue. Mm. So Cash then uses his fame as the cola and smile bitch guy to go on TV and expose how worry free is making these horse people. But instead of it having negative consequences for worry free, their stock drastically increases and the yeah. general public does not seem to be outraged by anything that's happening. I do like how like in the space of like two minutes, this movie does what don't look up was like trying to do for two hours and it just like accomplishes it very seamlessly mm -hmm. and quickly. Sure. Cause cash can't even like make his point before he like, is covered in shit on television. Like they won't even let him get to the point before he's been completely humiliated. Right. Exactly. So then cash contacts squeeze and Salvador to devise another plan and they break in and release the Equisapiens who attack the cops who have been beating the shit out of the protesters at Regal view throughout the movie. So basically there's an Equisapien uprising mm. and then Things quiet back down and Cash has reconciled with Detroit and Salvador and he intends to go back to Regal View as a telemarketer. And then the movie ends with Cash starting to turn into an Equisapien. And then we flash forward to him breaking into Steve Lift's mansion, presumably to kill him. Dun, dun, and dun. that is the movie let's take another quick break and we will come back to discuss bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. All right. Where to begin? Yeah, Sam, is there anything you want to kick off with? You know, I guess like my biggest takeaway, and this was my biggest takeaway after being asked to rewatch the film under the Bechdel lens. Mm. You know, when the film first came out, I think a lot of folks were saying there are several things in this movie's favor. It's an Oscar-worthy film, Oscar-caliber film, with a black mm-hmm. cast made by a black creator. Mm-hmm. We love that. This mm-hmm. is an Oscar-worthy, Oscar-caliber film that is a critique of capitalism, an excessive capitalism. We love that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those were the only messages that I took in when I first saw the film. But as soon as you watch it with any Bechdel in you, you realize <laughs> Tessa's character is a prop. She's a prop the entire movie, and you never really see her have her own life, have her own interest, or have anything to say unless she's saying it to Lakeith's character or his friends, or in one scene, these shitty art collectors who literally 
throw sheep's blood on her as she's almost nude. Mm -hmm. And it's like what I wanted the entire film was to see Tessa Thompson talk to her friends about her life and what she wanted to talk about and not have it be in service to the mission of the main character. And I suppose this is like the fatal flaw of many films, but I'm almost mad at myself for not catching it the first time or two I watched the movie. But as soon as y'all said watch it Bechtel style, I was like, oh shit, (laughs) it's real. It's real. (laughs) Yeah, it's, this movie is, I I feel like the, the spirit of the Bechtel test is like pretty relevant to this movie. And I remember seeing it discussed at the time not I, I think that it was you know overshadowed by the very deserved praise that this movie received but yeah Tessa Thompson's character is it's so frustrating because it's not like the opportunity isn't there and it's not like giving her character more to do or even like cutting a different minor character in order to create the real estate to give her more to do it, it's like her, the character is there it just doesn't seem like the interest in exploring the character was made because she and cash are under similar circumstances but the movie is Mm -hmm. mainly interested in how cash deals with it i feel like the movie is even a little more interested in how sal deals with it um and it ends up being like i felt like by the end of this movie even though you get moments like i i like the idea of exploring like well what does art accomplish if you are talking about capitalism to capitalists like that's a really interesting question that is impossible to answer in the space of one art (laughs) but (laughs) it just felt like she was yeah she was used as a tool and you don't know really anything about her outside of the fact that she's an artist and she's lakeith stanfeld's girlfriend and then as the movie goes on it almost feels like she's this like symbolic pawn in like, well, if she goes with, is she going to go with squeeze or is she going to go with Mm -hmm. cash? Will cash get his shit Mm -hmm. together or will she go with Mr. Union? And it just like, I feel like it totally undercuts a really cool character. They set up that we never get to like, you're totally right, Sam. She doesn't have friends to talk to. There are no women present in cash's life outside of her that we know of. And even, I mean, I was even like, hoping for scraps i think the first time i watched this movie it like registered for me but i was so blown away by what this movie does well that i was like well i don't know and then when i watched it the second time it's like we don't even get like some sort of bizarre contrived conversation between her and kate berlant like yeah they work together why can't we have that and Mm. they're like politically opposed yeah kate berlant has the most interesting monologues of all the management at the company lakeith's character Mm -hmm. works for Mm -hmm. they don't give you any backstory on her and it's kate berlant who can do it she can read any (laughs) lines you want to give her she's great it is it is wild to me though especially when i look at like the bechdel of it all and the colorism of it all she's not just this black woman who is a prop for this guy she's a very light-skinned very traditionally beautiful black woman who is a prop not just for this man but a prop for these capitalist art consumers who get to throw shit at her mm-hmm. the color politics of it mm-hmm. also feel weird especially when you think about all right who is most hurt by the excesses of late stage capitalism. Right. Women. And particularly and darker skinned people. Women of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and black women. Yeah. And so if anything, 
a film that's a commentary on late stage capitalism should be centered around women because they're going to bear the brunt of the burden of all that bullshit. They always do. Mm-hmm. And there was like a fair amount. Of, I mean, I, I, it sucks. I wish that this had been kind of a more public discussion. I, Caitlin, were you able to find any example of Boots Riley addressing this? Cause he, I, I wasn't able to find a quote of that. Um, Cause he does tend to be like, he seems like kind of open to like having those discussions. I just wasn't Mm -hmm. able to find evidence of this discussion specifically. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I wasn't able to find it. I did find him in an interview. I forget which YouTube interview it was, but you know, I was kind of fooling around on YouTube. Ever heard of it? Sicko. (laughs) And the interviewer had a different perspective and said that, um, you know tessa thompson's character is so well developed how like how did you go about developing her and he said like oh i basically wrote myself into that character um i didn't like write down direct quotes but that but like paraphrasing is is what he said i mean which which i do definitely see because he's like an artist making uh making a you know you know, making radical anti-capitalist statements. Yeah. But in doing that, he's also, like you mentioned, Sam, like giving her a very like sexualized body centric piece of performance art. And he's like, I just, it it feels like a very valid criticism to say that he's like not putting black women's experiences like front and center in this film. And it, it undercuts what he's trying to say with the rest of the movie by Mm -hmm. making Tessa Thompson like a tool versus a character. I, and maybe it's just because the bar for developing women in movies is so low. And especially for characters who are like the love interest of the male protagonist who get like usually zero characterization. I actually felt that, Detroit got more characterization than we are used to seeing. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's like it was a shining example, but I would argue that we know more about her than we know about Salvador or Squeeze. Sure, a lot of what she does is very contingent on her relationship with Cash, but the fact that we even know that she's an artist and we see her do her art and we see her like at an art show in a scene that doesn't need to be in the movie, but right. I like, mean, it was intentionally like, put there. I was, I was on the fence. Cause I do, I don't know, like all the mechanics that play in that scene where you're seeing her art. I feel, I, I feel like ultimately for me, the concept of art was better characterized and explored than <laughs> she herself character. was. And like knowing that Boots Riley saw himself as like, was, was putting a lot of himself into that that kind of helps clarify it. Cause it's like, it's not like, you know, being an artist that wants to use their body as a part of their art is inherently bad. Like I used, I do that shit all the time. So, it, but it's mm. like, because it's a straight man writing a woman's art. Like it just, I feel like it gets so messy. It did feel messy. And the thing that really stuck out to me was I felt she was framed as kind of like the prize to be won back at the end when Mm -hmm. like, you know, cash triumphs. And of course there's the very well-worn trope of a male hero, you know, getting the girl at the end of the movie as a way to signify like 
look how awesome he is. Look at how much he deserves like a woman's body and a woman's love. Like this is his reward for the heroic thing he did. That felt pretty glaring. And I kept waiting for that to be pushed back on in because this movie is so self-aware about so many issues, but this is just like not really one of them. Well, and it felt like they were trying to juxtapose almost these parallel mirror images of the way capitalism makes you compromise your morals through Lakeith's character and through Tessa's character. But the whole time we're seeing this complexity with Lakeith's character in this conflict. And like, he's really a great guy, but he has to make these choices for the money. Mm -hmm. Ostensibly Tessa Thompson's character is doing the same thing, making these artistic choices for the money to support her art. But there's never time given to her to be that complex and to be that nuanced. She's almost painted in that scene where the sheep's butt is thrown at her as a sellout. Mm. And even though Lakeith is perhaps the bigger sellout in the movie, Mm -hmm. he's never really painted as such. He's always just compromised and in distress and has to do what he has to do. That felt weird as well. Like there's a version of this movie where you let them truly be mirror images and they both get equal time sure. and equal space to be conflicted. Yeah, because it is like the the question that Detroit's character is exploring is so interesting and like one that is clearly and like understandably haunting Boots Riley. And so it's like, exactly. why not give that? equal precedence and it's almost more interesting because it's like i know the answer for the lakeith question you know capitalism that makes employees slaves is inherently bad yes we get that it's a much harder conversation when you talk about a responsibility an artist has to money right a responsibility an artist has to sustainability and keeping their art going that's almost a more interesting question to ponder and boots riley just didn't really do it and that's For like sure. a question that's more relevant. I mean, that's like a question that I think about all the time of like, we have yes. a feminist podcast on iHeartRadio. Like, so. Yeah, it's got to make money, like, right? Like, you have to make these compromises. Yeah. And those are, I mean. I, Listen, I, I read ad copy now. And I, I'm just like, whoa, yeah. this is wild. Right. Like, this is wild. leftists reading ad copy. Like, but <laughs> yeah. for what? But like, that is the kind of like stomach crawling stuff that I feel like Boots Riley is well equipped to do. I don't know why. Like, even outside of the fact that they're... I don't know. I don't know. And then it... Did he have other writers on this film, or was it just him? He's the only credited writer. It was. This was like a labor of love yeah. for him. As, as far as I could tell, this was something he was working on for years and years and years. The full screenplay was published in McSweeney's back in 2014. Um, oh. He finished the first draft in 2012. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. It's funny that you tell me that because it makes me think of a man, a male writer that we mentioned before in this chat, Mike White, who did The White Lotus. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I realized the biggest critiques I had of that show and the the plot holes that he let get through could have probably been answered or solved or spoken to if he had just had some other writers. Yes. I think a lot of times we reward these often male writers for having this particular unique vision that they hold close to their hearts for a decade or more and make art and make work out of. But it's like your work would be better, Mike White, Boots Riley, 
if there were women in the room, people not like you in the room, people who see the world differently than you in the room. And you're still the boss, you can preserve your central vision, but everyone could use some help in those regards. And I just feel like this is an example of a male screenwriter having a great idea, but not getting enough notes. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's, and and with this story in particular, like, I, I totally see what you're saying, Caitlin, about, like, we do know more about Detroit than what we would know about a lot of, like, quote-unquote love interest characters yeah. in any movie. And it, maybe it would, like, bother me less if there were other women around sure. who we, like, got to look into. But because it's, like, the only woman we get to know, and also the only black woman we get to know, her her body is used to kind of half explore a topic that the movie doesn't quite land on an answer to and it's a who's she gonna pick thing I don't know it's just like and I I I totally agree Sam where it's like if you had had a woman take a pass way higher likelihood that that would have been caught and expanded on or like scaled back or whatever the solution would have been yeah definitely I wonder and I guess I want to ask how do y'all survive as fans of movies, watching and reviewing and going back <laughs> well, over movies in this with this critical lens, do you just give up a lot of movies? <laughs> As we always say, everyone is allowed to love whatever they love, whatever they grew up loving. We just ask people to be critical of the media they consume. You can still love something that, you know, isn't perfect and that has issues. I mean, goodness knows, I love a lot of problematic shit still. Yeah. Because if you only loved things that were absolutely flawless when it comes to like intersectional feminist analysis, Chicken Run, uh, Chicken Run, and that's it. And that, yeah. and that, and Mel Gibson's in that. So you still can't, you know, love it fully. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, we have nothing. We have nothing. So there's not, there's nothing. So, you know, we, we do kind of, you know, you do kind of have to make like compromises as, as far as, your tastes and the media that you consume. Uh, It's just all about, you know, having the conversations about the issues in the things you love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's thinking about how different this film might've been if a woman were helping write it or anybody other than Boots were helping him write it. The thing that was lost in this discussion in the film about the plight of the low wage worker is that a lot of low wage workers and a lot of low wage workers who are women, who identify as women, they are often taking care of somebody else. Mm-hmm. They are often raising a child or more by themselves. They are often taking care of an ailing older relative by themselves. And the entire equation of how you work and how you live is affected by that reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the story would have had even more depth and richness if the low wage worker at the center of this movie were also a caregiver. Mm, we're also yeah. a woman. Like, th- th- that's the reality. And I just feel like Boots Riley, Boot Riley's commentary about late capitalism through this movie it kind of ignores who is usually the default low-wage worker it's a woman taking care of somebody else exploited worker right Right, and the most vulnerable workers right yeah especially because like women not only have to deal with you know their labor being exploited in the workplace they also often have to deal with sexism and mm-hmm. sexual harassment mm-hmm. and, but instead we see in this movie um Kate Berlant's character sexually harassing cash not to say that right. doesn't happen 
but less likely it's less likely although you know there's a conversation to be had about like white people sexualizing black bodies and you know black male mm-hmm. bodies and but um i don't even know if the movie is trying to make intentional commentary on that right i wasn't really sure yeah it wasn't even yeah it wasn't going that far yeah wasn't sure what the intention was but yeah you know women have to deal with a lot of extra things usually yeah so, yeah. yeah and i do get like i think we've had conversations like this before where sometimes oh i'm actually thinking of what was that sofia coppola movie we covered a, a bajillion years oh, ago. oh the beguiled the beguiled right <laughs> where she was adapting an older movie that had a black character in it but sofia coppola said at the time well that's not my experience so i just wrote out the character which right. is such an absurd reaction. I will say one thing about Sofia Coppola. <laughs> she is unabashedly white. She, she doesn't hide is. it. Ooh. She is not apologizing for it. it, it oh. I will say love the bling ring. Love the bling ring. I still haven't seen the bling ring. White chaos at its oh, finest. I hate that movie. Oh, it's good. <laughs> but she, I mean, she. Well, yeah, she is. She is Aspen white. She is Boston white. She is <laughs> yeah. white white. Oh yeah, and but but like that was, and she, I mean, in the style you're describing, like in the most white woman style, she was like, well, yes, there was originally a black woman in the original movie. People had a lot of criticism of how she was written, and I'm not a black woman, and I, no one else is writing on this movie, so I just wrote that character out. And you're like, that is that's the not worst how to reaction to that. that. Well, and this is the thing with like people as powerful in the industry as Sofia Coppola they can actually budget as many writers as they want for their projects. Right, like it's a choice. It's a choice. Like Boots Riley, you know what? Maybe this was a, maybe this was like a total indie project. He had no money, no funding, no help. But Sophia, you've got resources. Right. Yeah, no excuse. She's just like choosing to be ignorant and erase people from her narrative that she doesn't understand or care about. Like, Although it is predictable. Like, I know what I'm in for when I watch a Sofia Coppola movie. White <laughs> chaos, right? Like, there's no <laughs> question marks there. Truly. So, I'm not, it's, not, it's not a one-to-one uh, with that situation in Boots Riley, but it does remind me of, like, like the critiques you were, you were making about auteurs in general earlier, Sam, where it's like, oh, well, if I, you know, Boots Riley doesn't understand women's experiences, so he kind of shies away from exploring them in this movie mm-hmm. versus bringing someone else in who could help him more fully realize that experience and improve the movie right yeah 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 well it's weird because like film inherently is so collaborative you've seen film shoots it's dozens of people doing this shit and then don't even talk about post mm-hmm. right like everything we see on a screen has had dozens if not more people involved and yet so many writers are like i can only do this part myself it's weird to yeah me. i don't know if it's an ego thing most of the time or it, and you totally it could have been a budget thing too and i know that this was like a you know labor of love for him and 3.2 million it's like a three it was like a three million dollar budget that's a low budget for Pretty low budget i mean I, I i love booth riley like i i feel like this is the sort of thing where it's like i would be really surprised if his next project came out and the same issues were present Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like it doesn't seem like unlike Sofia Coppola he seems like an artist who actively does want to like grow and learn and all this all this shit um but it did it was interesting that it was like oh it it felt to me of like well I want to have you know these characters in the movie but I don't fully understand the experience so it's like I'll I'll just focus on more of 
what I know, and that's more of like Lakeith Stanfeld's experience. Because Boots Riley also, this story was like pulling from his own life where he used to work in telemarketing when he just started making music to make ends meet. And so it's like, even though I guess he's exploring the art side of himself through Tessa Thompson's character, the more like direct experience analog um, at least at the beginning of the movie, is the like, Keith Stanfeld character. Mm-hmm. Right. Fun fact, I did telemarketing years ago for four days. Oh, <laughs> and I said, this, there's no way in hell. And I got paid out for four days of training. It was great. Oh, my God. <laughs> Brave. Rude. What were you marketing? I, don't, I didn't find out. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I think it was something cable related. <laughs> Shout out West Telemarketing. RIP. I think they're oh, dead now. Anywho. Dang. I, I don't know. I have, a, I have complicated feelings about this because I wonder if maybe it's just because the, the movie accomplishes and comments on so much else that I'm like, I'm a little bit more lenient with it. Because, I mean, so many movies that take a very sexist approach to characterizing the women also are bad in many other ways yeah but this movie it has a a strong agenda anti-capitalist agenda it's very pro-union it's pro-working class it's it's pro-black in a really beautiful way it's Mm -hmm. for sure it's it's you know commenting on police brutality it's commenting on cultural appropriation it's you know it's handling a lot of stuff and it's right and it's like no movie has to handle like everything everything. i like but i i do feel like i don't know for the for the purposes of our but you show, you know what movie does? Chicken, Chicken Run. Run. Chicken Run. <laughs> <laughs> the most progressive film of all time. Um, well, in part because it's probably free from a lot of these constraints of race and gender politics. Mm-hmm. It's chicken uh, because it's they're chickens. chickens. Because they're chickens. <laughs> Although they are gendered, right? They are gendered. They're very gendered. Refer to our episode on <laughs> Chicken Run for the full discussion. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to rewatch run. the movie and then listen to the episode. My my evening is set. It's a Chicken <laughs> Run kind of afternoon, okay? It, That's happening. It is one of our Patreon episodes, so it is behind a we'll paywall send it to you. because we'll send um, it to you. Oh, but also happy to contribute. <laughs> listen, I'm here for wow. it. I'm here for it. Wow. <laughs> Did you just sell our guest on our Patreon? I'm speaking I am speaking to the to the everyone who is listening who might be interested in the chicken run episode letting them know mm-hmm. setting expectations you know no i totally agree with you and it's like and we never want to like set the bar of like every movie needs to tackle every topic with complete realization and perfectly but i but i i think just for me like it's because this movie has such a strong progressive agenda and black women are so frequently um left out for sure of progressive narratives it's like worth mentioning definitely no doubt about it. I do want to share a quote from Tessa Thompson uh, from an interview on on the Build Series YouTube channel. Uh, she was asked why she wanted to be in this movie. And she said, quote, I've always wanted to make a film that hung out in the space of magical realism. So many of the films that I love sort of use that filmically. And for whatever reason, there are never any black or brown people in those narratives. So I just always assumed that I would never get to make a film like that, unquote. Which, very true. Most fantasy, sci-fi, magical realism, surrealist. I mean, we were talking about the the 
current Lord of the Rings discourse somehow going on at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Right. So, you know, happy for her that she got to be in a movie, like, in the genre that she wanted to be in. But, yeah, still. Um, yes, but I still wish that yeah. they'd done a better job with the character. Sure. Yeah. But also, though, if you are a black actor or actress in Hollywood, a black woman in Hollywood, I'm guessing you're glad for the work. It's still a hard landscape. I mean, it's much better than it was 20 years mm-hmm. ago, but like a lot of times you got to just take the job. You take the job, you for know? Sure. So I'm never going to like begrudge Tessa no. for this role in this Mm-mm. movie. And I'm not even going to get that mad at Boots, but I am going to say like, learn something from this. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I just feel like he will. <laughs> like I, I. No, he will. Like, and the industry has changed. I think a lot that would have been okay when that movie was made isn't okay anymore. Yeah, yeah, which which does which is heartening because this was only four years ago, so yeah, like I for listen like we're it is a smaller issue within a movie that's accomplishing a lot, but you know worth addressing. I'm glad I'm Definitely. glad that we are discussing it. Yeah, um, I just didn't know. I mean, did either of you know a lot about Boots Riley's life before? I knew who he was, like I knew he was a musician, but I just didn't know that he grew up in in like a really really progressive pro-union like he was raised by organizers he like Mm -hmm. did all this cool shit like he went to oakland high school and was organizing student walkouts when he was like 14 years old Hmm. and just like his whole life has been defined by these causes of uh, pro-union pro-black anti-capitalist organization and it is like so fucking cool to see that like realized so clearly in a movie that is so good like it is it's it's fucking awesome it's good well and i mean like he is just part of a really large big looming legacy of like black people in the bay area specifically black people in oakland they've always been on that liberation theology they've always been radicalized fighting for justice this is where the black panthers are doing their shit like mm-hmm. there's a strong legacy there that boots riley is a part of and that's a beautiful thing you know it's like even in spite of the flaws that we've talked about in this film to see this creative artistic work that comes out of a long lineage of black activism in the East Bay. It comes out of that. Like, that's nice mm-hmm. to see. That's great to see. For sure. It's so fucking cool. Like, uh, Boots Riley's the cool. <laughs> and it's like, how many of our, Boots, like... we like you. Yeah. Our, our, like, big directors are, like, publicly identify as communists. Like, that's wild. That's Literally. That's so cool. Well, and then even to see how we handled the whole Oscar campaign for it, which was to yeah. not... It's like, good on you, man. Yeah. Like, fuck the system. Right. Fuck it. Got bigger fish to fry. Like, it's, uh, yeah, nothing but love. He's making a show right now. What is the name of the show? He's he's like, that's his next mm. project. Because I was like, where, where is he? What's he been doing? He's making a TV show called I'm a Virgo. That's all I know. Okay. Oh, um, God. But it comes out, I think, About next what? Year. As a Taurus? I'm offended. <laughs> I can't relate. <laughs> as a Leo, I don't care because it's not about me, so I don't care. <laughs> yeah, as as a as a Leo, Virgos are frightening to me. Um, but it is it is Virgo season, and it's a big year for Virgos because uh, Beyonce released a new album publicly uh, discussing her Virgo. 
Ness. Virgo Ness. Yes. Oh, yes. she sure had, she had a seven minute song called Virgo's Groove on it. Yeah. She was in her bag. <laughs> that said, I do feel like every year Leo season is too short. We deserve six months. But whatever. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So shall we talk about what we feel the movie is accomplishing successfully yeah and it's so much mm-hmm. it's so like i feel like this is one of the more is at least like modern movies that really clearly addresses pro-union issues in a way that is uh i don't i don't know what exactly how to like phrase this but like i like when movies show you like you could basically watch this movie and have some sort of understanding of like this is how a union movement builds but it doesn't feel like it's bopping you over the head with it Mm -hmm. you see Stephen Yin's character like explaining it basically like through his actions and also just because Cash doesn't know a lot about unionizing he's just like yeah this sounds good but like what is it Mm -hmm. and I just like that over the course of this movie, you see them like build union power and see like the upsides of it. And they, you know, when they organize the like phones down moment, that is effective for them. And then like, but then also seeing the other side of it where people are losing their jobs, they start to use police force to try to, Mm -hmm. um, to try to oppress union workers as, as the, protests get bigger and I don't know there's not a lot of movies that have an interest in showing the ups and downs of that and they win yeah it's like a hollow victory but they win right yeah kind of like piggybacking off of the police force being used I feel like there's like pretty active commentary on cops using brutality to protect the ruling class and And their property rather because they are seen routinely in the movie beating the crap out of the protesters on the picket line Mm -hmm. for for simply exercising their right to protest Mm -hmm. and they are punished violently for it so i i again not a lot of movies are interested in exploring that and then on top of that like there there's i don't know revisiting it for this episode was fun because i kind of forgot how like nuanced that because it's like the movie is very very clearly pro-union but the protagonist is a union scab like he's still going to work he's still getting promoted up the ladder and like he ultimately you know quote-unquote pays a price for it Mm -hmm. but I I did appreciate that it wasn't like 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 his predicament was really clearly contextualized yeah where it wasn't just like scabs are the devil and while you don't as a viewer agree with what he's doing you're like made to understand like why he's doing it because his uncle (laughs) is going to lose his house like Mm -hmm. he needs income not just for himself but for his family and and like making those choices under those circumstances are not easy so it's like should he have been a union scab i think it's really easy to say no but they also very clearly set up at least the reason why he starts to do it i think why he continues to do it is like capitalist shit but the reason he starts is clear and and in the same way of just like in the space of a line um they contextualize terry cruz's like role as a landlord of it's really Mm -hmm. like yeah fuck landlords uh this particular landlord is his uncle and is going to lose his house and it's like this whole domino line of who is exploiting who is exploiting who Mm -hmm. it breaks your brain a little bit Right. Yeah. And yeah. again, it's it's the movie exploring why people 
uphold the status quo that is capitalism. Often it's for survival reasons, like capitalism does force a lot of people to compromise their values simply to survive and to like make enough money to have a place to live and to feed yourself and feed and take care of your family if you have one. And then as far as like, once you reach that, because cash is then able to move into a nice place and buy an expensive car and all this stuff, um, why does he continue to uphold the status quo could be apathy and then it also like i i was wondering about that for like the mr beep character he is a black man but he's always using his white voice he tells cassius to always use his white voice we don't get any context for why he is making these choices but it i don't know it just felt like an examination of like how capitalism and gaining wealth warps a lot of people's brains and manipulates them into making a lot of ethical compromises. Yeah, and I, and and you see that right away when when Cash starts his job where one of the first calls he makes is to an elderly woman who he is trying to scam cuz it's his job to scam her right. and she is like I don't have any money my husband has stage 4 cancer and and just like breaks down in tears and then Cash has to compartmentalize that experience and that you know like he knows mm-hmm. but he has to eat and he had like he's going to get kicked out of his place and it's like you see right away that even when he's not getting paid he has to morally compromise himself in order to you know in the pursuit of maybe getting paid mm-hmm. It's just like, it's so, it's so fucking bleak and it feels terrible, but it's so well done. It is. Well, and like, and like for me, like the things that I love about this movie are really lovable. Mm -hmm. One, it's really fun to look at. It's visually arresting and stunning and it just pops in a way that feels delightful, even though the topic area is pretty dark Mm. and then besides that it's a really great showcase of some amazing actors who are all doing really great work you've got like heat stanfield Mm. tessa thompson steven yun kate berlant i could go on terry cruz is in there like there's a lot of good people in this movie (laughs) Danny danny glover to see him pull this cast together and make it all work on a budget of $3 million, that's, like, commendable. Yeah. So I don't want to dismiss that. Like, no. every no. actor in this movie is great, and they're all doing the work. Like, Tessa's role is flawed, but she plays the fuck out of her role. Mm-hmm. For sure. And there, and, and like you were saying earlier, Caitlin, there's so much going on in this movie. So the fact that, like, the landing is stuck on so many issues is, like, Mm-hmm. All while like these amazing performances are happening, it's. I mean, this is like this is one, this is one of my favorite movies. It's so good. It's so good, mm-hmm. and it's like beautiful to look at, and it makes you feel horrible. Right. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it it takes some pretty wild narrative risks too. With like suddenly there's horse people in the movie. I remember yeah. when that because <laughs> that gets revealed maybe like two thirds of the way through the movie, and I was just like, oh, I was not expecting expecting this i was not expecting to see an enormous horse penis in my face um and yet really wild yet and yet the other i mean i guess just on the i mean if we were unpacking every single thing this movie is saying about capitalism we would be here for a long time but just a few things that stuck out to me outside of um 
I, I mean, I love Squeeze's character, not just because Steven Yeun is also in my uh, top tier celebrity crush mm. pyramid, but of course, because I, I really like that there is a whole character dedicated to building union power. The only thing that, let, let, I mean, and I totally get why he's like, I should be Tessa Thompson's boyfriend. I'm like, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, but outside of that, I mean, the worry free commentary, I feel like it's a really clear stab at Amazon warehouses and just factory labor in general mm-hmm. and all the labor abuses uh, that take place there across the world. Like, yes. You know. Yeah. Well, and that's also what I loved about this film. Like it was super on the fucking nose. Yeah. You know, right away they're talking about Amazon and like, thank you <laughs> right. for that. Be like, say it, and name like, it. Cash is green. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Like it's right. so good. And then Squeeze says something like, when you're shown a problem, but you have no idea how to control it, you just get used to the problem, which I feel is how a lot of people react to what I was talking about earlier, as far as like people upholding the status quo of capitalism. You're just like, well, I, I know I'm like a corporate sellout, but I don't know really what else to do or like what can me one person possibly accomplish to like unravel this institution so that you just sort of like get used to it quote unquote and like uh, he's just like boots rally is like making all these kind of like super leftist borderline actually communist talking points of the fact that i and, and through the character of squeeze and also through some of like what cassius fucks up where mm. i thought like one of the most effective parts of the movie was the whole like viral culture stuff which was super on the nose as well but I just thought it was better done than I've seen it done almost anywhere else I feel like a lot of movies and TV shows right now are trying to like unravel that a little bit and I like the idea that it's like you get Danny Glover's perspective on um, I I got the shit kicked out of me where you know like Squeeze (laughs) is like oh this is so fucking humiliating this is so depressing and Danny Glover's like this is the best show ever. Like mm-hmm. and that, like just whatever the whole like reality TV culture thing of like, well, I feel like I'm getting the shit kicked out of me every day. At least I don't have it as bad as that guy. Mm-hmm. And then like the super simple, like I forgot about it before rewatching it. But that moment where the woman who throws the can at Lakeith's head, she becomes a viral star and a spokeswoman for the soda company. For, like, yeah. Wait, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. shit. It's amazing. Like, That's I, pretty cool. It's so small that, yeah, it's like blinking, you'd miss it. But it's like yeah. she also sells out because I'm sure that soda company offered her a huge fucking check to sell mm-hmm. out the act she took at a union protest mm-hmm. and monetize it into being a soda mascot and that how like yeah. cash has to like leverage his viral fame like would he be able to get on tv if he hadn't gotten hit in the head with a soda can probably not probably not mm-hmm. and then when he achieves that he goes on like jimmy fallon and tells people to call their congressman which boots <laughs> riley clearly thinks is useless because squeeze says that in the next scene where he's like mm-hmm. you know people it makes people feel good to call their congressperson because they feel like they're doing something to address a problem they actually have very little power to change right. which is like i think very like based on what i know about boots riley it's is just like his his politics and it's all done so like smoothly and it also like looks so cool and that 
uh, I just, yeah, that little undercurrent, like towards the end of the movie, I just loved it. It's so good. Right. And then when um, Cash tries to expose Worry Free for this like horse people thing they're doing, Mm -hmm. it just drastically spikes the stock of Worry Free and no one gives a shit. They're like, oh, Worry Free is even cooler than I thought. On the news, they're calling it like scientific innovations from genius Steve Lift. (laughs) Like, and it's not until like a violent uprising happens that and it doesn't even I don't even know how much it actually changes the world because then we just like zone in back on cash and he's just sort of like reconciling his personal life at the end of the movie but um and just the idea of like I don't know like it just goes against I guess traditional movie logic not that you're conditioned to believe you're watching a traditional movie at all when you watch this Mm -hmm. but like I remember kind of falling for it the first time where it's like by the end of the movie cash has he done a lot of legal crimes yes but (laughs) He's learned his lesson. He's learned the error of his ways. He's a union man now. He's like back to where he started, but with all the knowledge that he's learned over the course of the movie, and maybe things are going to be all right. But the movie kind of suggests like, well, the reality isn't that simple. Like he did learn something, but it's too late to go back to the way things were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, another thing that we haven't really touched on yet that the movie comments on is code switching and cash having to code switch to make sales and turn more profits for the company which is based on boots riley again working as a telemarketer you know back in the day and finding that he needed to put on a different voice to find success quote unquote at this job i've got a i've got a quote from him here Mm, yeah from this is from a guardian interview from when the movie came out yeah speaking to this point he said quote you try to obscure the fact that you're black just on the very basic level of trying to make someone feel like you're like them and on the more racist level of someone being okay giving you their credit card information that's what i was pulling from unquote Hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. well and like it was nice for me to see it just like made so plain and so clear i think like in other spaces no one is asking you to code switch, but they're expecting it. And there are like gradations of the code switch. Like I worked in public radio for 12 years and no one's ever telling you to sound more white, but you get it <laughs> and you get who the audience is. And so to see code switching as a phenomenon and a problem punched up to like the highest level. I don't know if it felt refreshing. I thought that part of the film was handled perfectly because it's honestly true. It's still yeah. true in 2022. And then in addition to that, so there, there are instances where characters want him to quote unquote act more white. And then other cases where they want him to ba- like lean into racist stereotypes, basically that part where Steve Lift is like, like the Army Hammer, yeah, when he's forced to rap and he's scene. just he yeah, makes this <laughs> improvisational rap song where it's just him saying nigga shit over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. This is after he got to that very room where he gets to rap nigga shit by talking white. I mean, it is a perfect mm-hmm. encapsulation of the conundrum of black success in America. You have to be both very black and not at all black to make it. And there's always some white person or white pressure or power telling you how to do it. (laughs) It's weird. And like, Mm -hmm. he did get that right. And that's why it's like, you know, gosh, I wish he would have gotten gender better 
as well, but he got that really right. And that Steve Lift wants cash. He knows that his worry-free employees are going to revolt. He's like, yeah, they're probably going to revolt. So I need someone on the inside to be To be their MLK. MLK, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, and I'll give you $100 million to do it because you doing that will, like, I can still spend $100 million on that. That'll be chunk change compared to the billions he will make exploiting the labor of the mm-hmm. uh, Equisapiens. Mm-hmm. With so, this freaky horse eugenics project. Yeah. yeah, that whole sequence, like, I mean, and that is, the movie goes so off the rails, but it's so, like, <laughs> it's so good. The The sequence where Army Hammer, like, puts pressure on on cash to rap which he's like i i don't do that and he's like well yes you do because he's racist and then it's like on cash to empower this room full of white executives to rap the n-word along with him which they gladly do mm-hmm. and then he they goes sure which is like ah and then in that scene i just thought it was because like the Steve the Steve Lift character, I feel like is like a you know kind of an amalgamation of all these billionaire white tech bros. Where it's like there's a little bit of Elon Musk in them. There's a little bit of Dan Bilzerian in them. There's like a lot a lot of these fuckos are like all wrapped into this one character. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was like interesting how the character like repeatedly really wants Cash to understand that he knows exactly what he's doing, but he's justified in doing it where he's like well i'm not evil or like when cash discovers the first horse person who like the experiment has gone wrong and they're in a a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and he's afraid he pisses himself and like he wants to leave steve lift's only counterpoint is like well no you should have watched this video before because like i don't want you to think i'm doing this for no reason like he's justified (laughs) doing it to himself because he's like well it's i have a reason and like whether the reason is good doesn't matter he just needs people to know that there's a purpose it's just so it's right it's it's very fucked up the mental gymnastics that you know ceos have to do or who even knows what goes through a ceo's brain there there's a scene earlier on where you see an interview with steve lift where he's responding to the claims that worry-free employment is basically slavery and he's like well that's not true because people are saying that we make the workers sign a lifelong contract under the threat of violence and he's like we don't do that under the threat of violence and therefore these claims are ridiculous and meanwhile he's running the company like the fucking sea org you're like this is so (sighs) Mm -hmm. scary also contracts are just so fucking bogus period like they're bogus right it's funny like i've worked in media now for 12 years and the longer i do it the more you realize a lot of the shit they have the talent signing never would never hold up in a court of law they just have you sign it this shit is so like nobody should ever sign anything that has anything like a non-compete in it that's bullshit it mm-hmm. doesn't like it can't do it i don't know sorry i'm just like sorry to rant here but like that part really yeah. spoke to me it's infuriating because, like, the, yeah the very nature of contracts is fake right and fake and it's like predicated on the idea that you should be grateful for the opportunity. Like, exactly. they're like, yeah, don't read the fine print. And it's also predicated on the idea of a threat. Yeah. The threat of a really binding contract is that you'll never have enough money to fight this in court. Mm. That's the threat. And so they can say that to you and know that you know that, even knowing that, like, the stuff in the contract isn't even that quite legal. 
but they know that you'll never have enough money to take them to court on it. Anyways, sorry, I digress. I just no, that no, shit it's not. It's relevant. <laughs> no, I feel like we should talk about this stuff more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, yeah. and it's like you watch you watch Cash make these what he is able to justify. I, I, we were talking about this a little earlier, but I just again I'm like Boots Riley like knows his shit backwards and forwards where it's like it's not like I mean I guess that the hundred million dollar quote unquote contract which is a fucking meaningless scrap of paper is the big compromise but Cash is asked to make these little compromises over and over and is reassured that like this is temporary you are a good person and that's like what Cash responds to he wants to like build a legacy in the capitalist sense but he also needs to think that he's a good person and so which i think is like a more relatable struggle than a lot of people want to talk about but it's like even Mm -hmm. that first scene with him and tessa thompson's character where he's like i want to like make some sort of mark on the world and Mm -hmm. which is i think like whatever a universal feeling but how do you accomplish that without hurting somebody and so he has to be repeatedly reassured throughout the movie that it's like this is it's just for now and Mm -hmm. it's starting in that scene that oh this scene i feel like even more so than the steve lift hundred million dollars thing the first time that he makes the big compromise while there's a union action happening in the adjacent room where he starts off like saying fuck you fuck you and fuck you and then within two minutes he's completely capitulated and (laughs) it's uh yeah, and he's like, no, 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 no. We're giving you a promotion, and he's like, well, all right then. <laughs> right. I take back my fuck yous. Yeah, yeah. And you know why he's doing it? Like it's just, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, it's ugh. These things are very complicated, and also that he, he's good at what he does, even though what he's doing is like is evil, morally bankrupt. But he takes pride in like being good in his work which is a very relatable thing and another question to to go back to Detroit for a second a question I had about her character that I don't know the answer to I kind of think it like it would have been another way to look at her character because I don't mean this in a judgmental way but I was curious like it seems like in the context of this movie she like one day is like okay you've been a union scab for too long Mm -hmm. and now we need to break up and I was like what like why now how is she able to justify staying with him for so long like all are just questions I would have liked to see explored through the story a little more without needing to add in like squeeze as a an alternate boyfriend in order to accomplish because it's like her politics are very clear obviously this is a big problem for them but as Lakeith's character points out she's enjoying the spoils of what he's doing she's living in this nicer apartment she is like mm-hmm. she is partaking and compromised in some way in the way that everybody is yeah it, i don't know it's just like another question that it was like that would have been cool to see her explore outside of the context of this relationship indeed does anyone have anything else they want to discuss I think I've given you all I want to give. Yeah. My last thing is that they credited the 
horse animation video to Michelle Dongri, <laughs> and that made oh, me laugh. Right. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Go, Michelle. All right. So as far as the Bechdel test, it does not pass. Is it that does not correct? Pass. It does not pass. Yeah, women don't pass. interact. Yeah. I thought we would get a throwaway. We did not. Mm, not even no. that. No. no. And again, it's like not the be all end all. It is a metric that was made uh, as a uh, one off thing, but it does feel relevant here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what is the be all end all media metric is the nipple scale, our perfect, flawless metric. The one perfect metric. <laughs> in which we rate a movie zero to five nipples based on examining it through an intersectional feminist lens. And for this movie, I mean, it, it's it's a tricky one because, again, it is handling a lot of things very well. It's, it's handling issues surrounding class and race extremely well and thoughtfully. As far as how it handles gender, though, as we've discussed, not quite so good. I guess I would, because of that, probably just split it down the middle and give it 2.5 nipples. I'll give uh, one to Tessa Thompson. I will give one to Lakeith Stanfield, my crush. Wow. <laughs> and um, I'll give my half nipple to Boots Riley. Oh, I maybe I, yeah, this is, this is again a brain breaker because I think of all the issues this movie explores effectively gender is maybe the least effectively explored issue right uh i'm gonna go three because i just think that this movie is doing so much right and it's one of my favorites so i'm also biased uh but fair yeah i i totally agree with what you're saying caitlin i i think that it is like worth discussing that there is only like one main female character and that she is very much used as a um i don't know she's she is more than just a girlfriend character i think that like i don't want to be reductive to Mm. the character of detroit but it's just like very underexplored uh we don't have a second woman for her to talk to and because you know black women's experiences are so underexplored in media in general the fact that this huge leftist movie kind of skirts around giving her an actual narrative feels Mm -hmm. uncool I, i i don't love it but right. I love so much about this movie. It's like the absolute fucking best. Um, I mean, again, right up there with Chicken Run. And that's a huge compliment coming from me. Ooh, okay. uh, <laughs> I'm not going to put it there. I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a two and a half. I All think right. like what I loved about it the first one or two times I watched it was not negated but put in different focus after i watched it through the bechdel lens Mm -hmm. and i just think that like we have to continue to ask men to do better and so boots do better you've got potential we love you do better two and a half yeah let's uh, hope fingers crossed that there's a lot of uh good good shit in whatever the virgo show is don't know (laughs) (laughs) get a writer's room that's the answer get a writer's room a (laughs) fully formed writer's room exactly and make sure it's diverse yeah yeah Mm -hmm. sam Mm -hmm. thank you so much for being here it's been a pleasure this was delightful where can people follow you online check out your stuff plug away yeah i am at sam sanders on both instagram and twitter S-A-M-S-A-N-D 
E R S. And I have two weekly podcasts. I have a podcast with my good friends, Saeed Jones and Zach Stafford. We chat about whatever. It's our group chat come to life. That show is called Vibe Check. Mm-hmm. Episodes drop every Wednesday. And then I host a show for Vulture and New York Magazine. It's called Into It. It is Vulture's flagship pop culture show all about the pop culture we can't stop thinking about. That show publishes every Thursday. It's so good. So Wednesdays and Thursdays, find me talking to you. And all other times, find me at Sam Sanders wherever. And you can follow us on social media at... Bechtelcast, Twitter, and Instagram. We, of course, have our Patreon slash Matreon, where you can find our Chicken Run episode, along with over a hundred other bonus episodes, all at patreon.com slash Bechtelcast. And then you can get merch over at tpublic.com slash Bechtelcast. Now, everyone... I gotta, I gotta go kill a billionaire because I, I'm a horse. So I gotta get out of here. <laughs> Same. All right. Bye. bye. Bean Dad, The Dress, Thirty to Fifty Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. Sixteenth Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet? or the algorithm, choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.